and welcome to the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making whatever that next handmade thing is. I don't know about you, but I love a good book. I love all of the books, but I don't always have time to read all of the books with my own eyes. I do, however, often have times where my hands are busy, but my ears are free. And that, my friends, is when audiobooks come in handy. So right now, you can go over and get yourself a free aforementioned audiobook called Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford. Johanna is an illustrator, and she has actually created this tale around sort of some of her gorgeous illustrations, um, but you don't need to see them to really get the artistic experience. She has woven together a tale um, and told it via audio. So check it out. It's a fantastic adventure for colorers and readers, and in this case, listeners of all ages. All you need to do to download it is go to tryaudiobooks.com crafter. You can also check out uh, loads of other great titles to listen to while you make, including a couple that I'll recommend in our last segment of this episode. So stay tuned. This week, my guest is Avery Truffleman, the producer and host of Articles of Interest, a six-part series within the podcast 99% Invisible. I came across this series after hearing an ad within one of the NPR podcasts that I listened to. So in case you're playing along at home, I heard about this podcast that's within another podcast by listening to an ad within a podcast that I listened to, and now I'm telling you about it on my own podcast. So this episode is pretty much the inception of podcasts, but I digress. So as soon as I heard about it, I binge listened to it straight away. In each episode of the series, Avery dives head into the history behind everything from pockets and denim to plaid and punk rock fashion. And through a series of expert interviews and witty conversations, she brings to life what seems like it might be a little, for lack of a better word, snoresville <laughs> to listen to, the history of some of our fashion staples. But it is so interesting and enjoyable, and I just, I really dug it as I did our conversation. So why don't we go ahead and listen to it now and meet Avery. Avery Truffleman, thank you so much for coming on to Craftish. Thank you so much, Vicki. It's an honor. I found your series within a series, which I want to talk about in a second, completely original and delightful articles of interest. Uh, but before I, I jump into that, I wanted to start with a quote from an interview that you did um, with Macon um, not too long ago about the question that I know I am, I'm always personally stumped with, too, about what it is that you do for a living. Mm. And, and in it, you said that this sounds really pretentious, but um, you're, I was calling myself a conversationalist because it's almost like an essayist. And I found that so interesting because... All of us that that are independent in whatever under whatever, whatever definition that is for you have had that moment in the doctor's office where you have, <laughs> and there's this little tiny tiny line. But so there's part that 
where we're all hustling. But the other part is that we're in this sort of wild west of professions because of new media. And mm. sometimes there are maybe prejudices against certain terms. I know, you know, a lot of reputable reporters and, and authors are hesitant to, be, to call themselves bloggers. Right. And, and what I sort of got from part of the article that I read from you is that you had sort of similar, I don't want to say issues because it wasn't that strong of a word, but you took pause in using the word for podcaster yourself. So I wonder yes. if you would just talk a little <laughs> bit, can you lay down your internal conflict? No, will you just talk a little bit about what it is that you do and if, how, how and if it's even necessary for you to define it? Ah, oh, such a great question to start with. I mean, yeah, it really gets to the to the heart of the matter. I think, um, well, for one thing, I'm very sensitive about, you know, I'm 27 and I've been doing this job for five years now. And it, in a weird way, podcaster is like the number one stereotypical shitty millennial job. You know, I think I'm very sheepish, especially around older people or my parents' friends to say I'm a podcaster um, because... You know, luckily, awareness of what a podcast is is increasing. So it's not as weird as it once was, but I think it's still very much a holdover from a time where people were like, podcast, what's that? Um, so it's funny. Actually, uh, recently, I met someone in San Francisco who's like, oh, I work for a YouTube channel. And I was like, really? That's your whole job? You work for a YouTube channel? And I was like, wait, I got to relax because this is exactly how people treat me when they're like, you're a podcaster, that's your whole job. Um, and the thing is, what being a podcaster is can mean so many different things. You know, I'm on staff at a larger show. It's not my podcast, uh, although Articles of Interest is a project spearheaded by me. Uh, so it's not one person alone in front of a microphone doing some, um, you know, doing doing a scrappy independent project it's very much like i go to an office i have a standing desk you know i have uh like a, if you have like a standing desk you're totally legit <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly and people people are like oh my god you have lacroix in the office it's like it's weird so it's kind of but we're not one of these large podcasting companies so and and that's the thing we are we're also one show it's not like we're a production house that makes a bunch of shows we are an office that makes one program and it's exceedingly lucky there are so few shops like this so it's really hard to explain uh the weird position that the show is in and you know podcasting can mean so many different things again it can be one of these production houses that makes multiple different kinds of podcasts and have um, you know, lots of different shows hosted by lots of different people. It can be an extremely independent operation. Um, and I think what we do is very, very close. We, we all have backgrounds in radio, broadcast radio. And what we do is very much an audio documentary, going around, interviewing people, finding actualities, finding archival tapes, splicing it together. We have a composer on staff 
um, who makes music for our documentaries. So, you know, it's very similar. The, the closest, the things we always get compared to are Radiolab and This American Life. But um, yeah, that's kind of the breed we are. Hey, that comparison doesn't suck. Take that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think that's such an interesting commentary. It's kind of a microcosm of where we are as a society. There's such a fluidity in a lot of professional roles now, definitions, you know, just even the small sect of design that that I work in, um, in knitwear, you know, it used to be you had this, these, you know, maybe 10 designers in the whole industry. And now anybody with a blog can throw up instructions. And that doesn't mean that they're correct. And that doesn't mean that I, I mean, but they also could be and they could be fantastic. But there are but but I hear sort of the same things come in 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 that realm too. like, well, I'm a designer, but I'm actually in house at, you know, spin right or I'm a designer but I've actually but I've been public I've written 13 books whatever it is it's like but I but I but you know it's this because it is such a you know not to repeat myself but it's a wild west right now totally and that's not a bad thing like it's not no it's fantastic but it's also confusing it's totally confusing it's totally confusing um yeah and I guess that's the thing it's about because I love a lot of the the um, scrappier. I think there's a lot of like exciting, wild invention that's happening, especially on yeah. the fringes of of the medium. And I'm sure it's the same for you as well. But there is something about uh, wanting an air of legitimacy or, yeah. or or differentiating yourself from what other people are doing. And in this case, the idea is like I'm actually doing something that's way more traditional than what I think a lot of podcasters are doing. Yeah, it's also interesting. I think it also gives a little bit of a a license to, you know, for instance, um, I do a lot of Facebook live videos, you know, um, and because of the live medium where we are, like nobody expects the quality to be great, but it's real, right. which is great because you can, frankly, there's no pre-production barely, or well, actually there's right. pre-production, but there's not post-production. And you know, people find it endearing when you drop something or whatever, but at the same time, it's really <laughs> important to also produce a beautiful studio show like I've done to keep up that legitimacy. So I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think it's such an interesting study in humanity uh, from mm. a professional perspective to watch us all grapple at yeah. what we need to define and why is it that we feel that we need to do so. Mm-hmm, 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 totally. You said that your background is in radio. Yeah. Does that mean that you went to school for radio, TV, and film? No, actually, not at all. I uh, I went to a liberal arts college, and I majored in literature and German. But I, uh, I mean, basically what I really majored in was college radio. I was obsessed with the college radio station. I would work there every night, and uh, every summer... I would intern at a radio show and waitress. And then when I graduated, I interned at NPR for a summer. And then I interned at Latino USA. And then suddenly I interned at 99% Invisible and it turned into a job. Man. Um, which is crazy. I, I would intern at NPR yeah. now. And I'm old enough to be your <laughs> teenage mother. <laughs> I mean, That's it amazing. was awesome. Yeah, it was you know, re- well, yeah. What kind, I had to of, what kind like of music did times. you? What kind of music did you play at your college station? Like, what what was the theme? 
Like, oh, was it a particular well, type of station? Was it straight up college or was it like an NPR affiliate? Yes. That was not that Yes. Co- okay. So that was the fun. That was the thing I was obsessed with, that it was an NPR affiliate. And we had all kinds of amazing weirdo talk shows. And I got to really meet people who uh, live and work in in the town. And I mean, people had one. Our most popular show was a show hosted by this um guy who identified as an alien and he had a huge reach all around the world and um you know this like wackadoo health show where they would talk they they would have all these like pie in the sky theories about healthcare that were totally wrong whatever like i loved it i just loved how off the wall it was and my the show that I did was basically I just interviewed professors and I interviewed visitors and it was my way of teaching myself radio. I would just record people on a really cheapo Zoom H1N recorder and I would edit it on GarageBand. But it was so fun. Like I loved, you know, it's so fun finding an excuse to talk to people. And I got such pleasure out of figuring out what sounded good, how to edit things. And I just realized time was flying by. I'd stay up all night just editing conversation. And the cool thing is GarageBand, you know, all these editing softwares are kind of dialects of the same language. So I was able to learn pretty quickly when it came time to use NPR's official software. And now we use Pro Tools. So I kind of, um, I kind of taught myself. But it was it was in college. But that's amazing that all of those tools were available for you to teach yourself. When I, I when I was in a radio program, I DJed for my college station too. Oh um, yeah. But way before you know, probably this would have been in like I don't know, maybe like ninety three, ninety four, like forever ago. And <laughs> uh, hey, don't judge. Um, and it was a jazz, a smooth jazz station, and oh, that cool. is just not. Was it though? <laughs> I just think that's so bad. Did you have to spin jazz? Um, I played the swingers soundtrack a lot. <laughs> like I was this punk rock teenager, you know. Yes. But I just loved broadcasting. I just loved I I just loved the communication aspect of it. And it was at the time where, you know, this was in Mission Viejo, and then I would drive two hours to up to where K Rock was, since you're a California gal I'll throw that out um and I had a job like I was doing an internship because I I was also interested in tv with this you know the distributor of saved by the bell so I would do that and then I would would drive the two hours home and I would go straight to waitressing and then get up for the 5 a.m drive time shift because that's a solid shift like you're getting listeners then yeah Um, and it just, but at, but we didn't have, like, they were still teaching us how to splice. You know, I still have, like... A with, cas- like, a knife. Yes. I still have, like, a cassette tape with my audition. I mean, it's, we didn't, there just weren't the tools that you could go home and dig. I mean, I'm sure if you want it badly enough, you, you find the equipment. But I love the accessibility now that how we're able to communicate with each other. And especially if you are a conversationalist, if you're an anthropologist of people and experiences, how accessible it is. And what a gift that was for you to, to be going to college at a time when, when that could be a thing. Ah, uh, see, but I'm so jealous of you because now... You know, uh, we used to share an office with an architecture firm, and it was wild to me that you'd walk into this 
room full of people looking at computers and you'd have no idea that half the people were designing buildings and half the people were making radio. Mm. Just the fact that you have to stare at a computer all day to do what mm. I do. Yeah. And so often I was like, Oh, I wish, I wish it was at least an option. It, I, you know, I wish I could at least take it on as a project to try to do it in the analog way. I have no idea how to splice tape. And I am envious that you got to learn that because honestly, it's really not that hard to learn audio software editing. Like anyone can do it. And that skill set of cutting out the ums with a knife and taping them together, like that is hard to learn. And I'm very sad that I missed that time because both my parents used to work in broadcast and they talk about how fun that was. And it sounds just so incredibly delicious when sound can be so tactile and it's in the tape and you're manipulating it with your hands like a sculpture and like, ugh, I'm so envious of you. I wish I that I had you whispering my ear at that time, romanticizing it. Because <laughs> really, it's just like, so tedious and a lot of and it also uh, also I also have to say like I am the person that likes to be out there talking to the people yeah, I don't yeah, enjoy yeah. as much the tedium of of post-production and so um that probably just speaks more to you know my own personality than anything else when we so you became interested at one point in you you always were in communication but also design but not necessarily designing yourself, correct? Well, at one point, I convinced myself that I wanted to be an industrial designer. And I took a summer course in industrial design, and I was terrible at it. I just really didn't like it. I wasn't good at it. Because um, I have a really hard time starting from a, a blank a blank slate, uh, which is why I like radio. Because, you know, you're not just starting with a blank page. You're working with people's words. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something that's already there for you. And I think I also felt uncomfortable making stuff. And I love that radio is intangible. And, you know, you make these products and they just exist in people's ears and in the air and have some lines of code. Uh, but they don't have to be produced and manufactured. And there are no suppliers to coordinate with. I want to dive into your series within a series articles of interest. First, before we we even get into the nitty gritty of it, it's why why a series within a series instead of starting a completely separate podcast? You don't hear a lot of that in this current climate. Well, yeah, well the the thing is we have an amazing audience at 99% invisible, which you know, the show has been cultivating for 8 years mm-hmm. now. And by starting something from scratch, it's so hard to get out there in the world and convince everyone to listen to a new podcast, especially when the people I wanted to reach were exactly the audience at 99% Invisible, because they are nerds. They are design-minded people. They love geeking out. They love learning history. They're extremely patient with facts in a way that I think is quite special. Um, and they love delving deep. And the fact that we have the ears of such a large, um, a large and high quality bunch of people, uh, it made me really want to reach out to them because it was kind of a plea for people who have not thought 
about clothing. I mean, it's for people who love and care about clothing like I do, but it's also for people who care about design, care about architecture, care about the world, but have never really given a thought to clothing before. And so it was a little bit of an evangelizing mission to be like, hey, have you thought about clothes? And people reach out to me all the time. I love, oh my God, an angel gets its wings every time a straight white guy tweets at me like, hey, I never thought about clothes <laughs> And it's just like, yes, I'm here to convert you all to fashion. Yes. So were you, did you know, because I actually found you in reverse. I found the series before the podcast. Um, really? How? Uh, probably one of the 500 NPR podcasts that I listened to. Oh, I think it wow. was, I think there was an, there was a ad just for that. And, you know, as a, as somebody, you know, who designs garments in a, in a different realm, like yeah. that, like my ears perked up, you know? Yeah. But then I was fascinated. Well, you know what, before I even get into that, do me a favor and just give, you know, the log line of what this series is. Sure. So 99% Invisible is a podcast about design. And we talk about, we're not talking about the future of design or new innovations in design. We're talking about the things in the world all around you that you see every day and take for granted. And the beautiful thing about it is you realize in listening to this show that every little thing from fire escapes to um, skyscrapers to, I'm trying to think, city flags. Everything has so much care and intention and thought behind it. And once you learn to kind of read the environment and understand all of the love and intention behind everything, the world kind of opens up and seems like a much more inviting and magical place place and it stokes a lot of curiosity. And so I've been working at the show for five years covering all kinds of things. And I just realized we weren't really talking about clothing and fashion gets kind of cleaved away from design with a capital D in a, in a really big way. Uh, fashion design is seen as something serious and fashion is seen as something fun and fashion is fun, but it's not just fun. It's deadly serious. And I had been thinking about this for years and years and years, um, really ever since I started at 99% Invisible, just thinking like, we have got to talk more about clothes. And I, my boss, uh, Roman Mars is extremely accommodating and supportive. And I brought him this idea of doing a show within the show and he went for it. So I'd been thinking about the ideas for six episodes for about three years, uh, half of that time, about a year and a half, I was working on actually gathering the tape and making it happen. How did you decide? So you have six episodes, as you said, and they each focus on a different, not even a different category of fashion. It's more finite than that. Sometimes it's it's a part of a piece. So you've got kids' clothes, plaid, Hawaiian shirts, um, indigo, punk style, and and pockets. And and um, well, f- how did you how did you narrow down? It's such a vast, <laughs> such a vast category. Um, yeah. Why pockets instead of zippers? Which, by the way, I called my friend right after I listened to it, and I said, "This is going to sound crazy, but I just I just listened to the most interesting podcast about pockets." Ah, <laughs> thank you, amazing. Um, and then well, she came yeah. to visit later, and we just said ridicules like again and again and again, which is a story I want you to t- talk about. 
<laughs> I, I want you to talk about pockets after you've an- answered my question about the about the um, I guess curation pro- process. Sure. Well, the reason, so the thing that's very different about from normal 99% invisible episodes that happened in this series was that, um, I began every episode by talking to a friend and I did this for two reasons. One, I think, um, there's a lot of energy between two friends, two people who know each other. I mean, it's why a lot of podcasts are hosted by two friends. Um, And so I really wanted to start there. And I also wanted to start there not only because it sounds better and more inviting and welcoming, but that's also where all the ideas came from. These Mm -hmm. all came from conversations with people, just as I was kicking around the idea of like 99% Invisible needs to cover clothes. How can we cover clothes? And, you know, it all really began... uh, with my friend Joe, who I feature in the kids' clothes episode, um, he is quite short. And I was like, where do you get your clothes? Because he has amazing style. And mm-hmm. I was just like, where do you get your clothes from? Can I go clothing shopping with you? So just and- a side note, Joe is 4'8", so he doesn't fit in the category of average size or little. He's in sort right. of this obscure sort of purgatory in sizing. Yeah, so- yeah. Exactly. And uh, so we went to the kids section of J. Crew together and oh my God, you know, it's all extremely loud, brightly colored, glow in the dark. And Joe is like a 35 year old man. He's extremely uh, and has this very like understated, sophisticated style, which is just so just like Mm. boggled my mind. But he was able to dress the way he does, given what he has to work with. And um this also was the process for the Hawaiian shirts episode. My friend Sarah, who grew up on Hawaii, uh, wrote an article about how a, a kind of um, provocative, cheeky article about how tiki bars are a form of appropriation. And I was just thinking about clothing and I invited her into the studio and I was like, do you think this applies to Hawaiian shirts. And we just kind of talked about it and went from there. And I went, I focused on pockets rather than zippers because my friend Piers, who I knew in college, the first time we ever met really was for a clothing, uh, a cross-dressing dance at our college. And he borrowed a dress of mine. And the fact that I didn't have pockets really messed him up. Mm-hmm. I mean, he locked himself out of his, his dorm room and it really stuck with him. I mean, he called me years later after we graduated and he was like, I just can't stop thinking about pockets. That was such a crazy thing. I had no idea that half the world doesn't live like I live. I took it so for granted that everything I need is just automatically by my hands. <laughs> and I had never thought of hearing mm-hmm. his shock, uh, shocked me. So that's the thing. It really all came from talking to people. And that's been the really fun part about putting this series out there is now I'm getting inundated with emails and messages about, um, different people talking about what various articles of clothing mean to them and how it's changed their perspective or changed their life or expressed something about their identity or their sense of home. Cause there's so much, I mean, you know, this, there's so much, uh, in clothing. It reminds us of so many specific things or specific times in our lives, kinds of bodies we've had moments in our style. You know, you look back at something you used to wear 10 years ago and you're like, who was that person? And you can recall, so much just by touching touching a garment. 
So as a producer, did you approach this? I mean, after you'd sort of, not during those six years where you were kind of, you know, letting things percolate, but when you when it, when it came down to producing these episodes, was it always your intention to sort of have a formula that included history, application, um, personal relevance, or did you just sort of let each garment story unfold itself? Well, there is, you know, at 99% Invisible, because I'm very used to telling the stories of objects, and a huge part of an object's story is its history. So I always was kind of looking for a historian. And the, I think the thing that was different in this case, rather than, um, you know, objects that you maybe pick up and use, and it says something about the user. Uh, I think with clothing, it's different because they're on our bodies, traveling through our lives with us, uh, expressing facets of who we are and our identity. So I think the thing that was really different this time, like I always knew I wanted to cover uh, history and origin and maybe a little bit about how it's made. But I think the idea of bringing that personal element into it, talking about what it means in a kind of sociological way, what are its implications, what does it symbolize uh, in this kind of McLuhan-esque interpretation of the garment, that was something that was different for me. And that involved a lot of a lot of different interviews, a lot of going around and um, just talking to people and seeing what would stick. You know, like uh, for the Blue Jeans episode, I went around, like there are a million different stories you could tell about Blue Jeans. You could do a 17-part yeah. series about jeans. There's so much to say. And in searching for the personal stories that would mean the most, I mean, I interviewed so many different people. I mean, I interviewed my friend Brad, who is a World War II historian. We wanted to talk about naval costumes because uh, the Navy used to wear jeans. And it was finally my friend Taylor who was like, you need to talk to my aunt Anne. She has this amazing story about how her grandfather escaped from an indigo plantation, mm. uh, which was actually at the last minute. That was kind of a, a last minute because she's she's a professor. She's very busy. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of like spaghetti at the wall, hearing people's stories, seeing what what stuck. That particular episode leaned in a bit to the environmental effects of fashion. Yes. Will you speak a little bit to the environmental effects of the indigo dyeing process. Oh God. Well, honestly, I'm not the best person to talk. You about don't have to give a, process. you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to give a dissertation, but <laughs> <laughs> just a few, I think that people, not even the dyeing process, the gene making process. How about yeah. that? There was, I'll get you started. There was a portion <laughs> that was really interesting to me about how denim actually is in its, first form versus how it presents itself when we're buying it at the Gap or wherever. Yes, yes. And that was fascinating to me. Um, basically, uh, so Levi's headquarters is here in San Francisco. So I went to visit and they showed me some of the oldest blue jeans in the world. And the crazy thing about looking at the oldest blue jeans in the world is they look like jeans, for the most part, they look like jeans you'd buy at the Gap today. I mean, they're way more worn in 
And there are a few little design differences. Like they have one pocket in the back. They have rivets in different places. But for the most part, they just look like blue jeans. And the crazy thing is, in our new, we have this idea of what blue jeans look like. And it takes so much work to get a pair of pants to to look like what we think blue jeans ought to look like. And the way we think blue jeans ought to look is basically worn in and rugged and looking kind of like those archetypal blue jeans from the 1800s because, um, you know, everyone knows that blue jeans used to be working class wear, farm wear, rodeo wear, whatever. And the people who wore blue jeans wore them every single day for years and years and years. And they wore them in and they got a little, they wore in at the knees, they wore in at the hips. And that's what we think blue jeans look like in their new form, in their raw unprocessed form, blue jeans are extremely stiff. They're extremely dark. They're extremely scratchy. And that's just not what we're used to. We don't see cowboys walking around in clean, new, dark blue, stiff jeans. We see them walking around in worn in, whitened pants. And so to give them that worn in look that we are accustomed to, Denim manufacturers wash jeans over and over and over and over again to break them in for you so that you don't have to do it. And and it's ex- and it's an extremely wasteful process. I mean, it's 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 really silly actually. Um, luckily there are a whole host of new ways that denim companies are trying to wear in jeans without so much water. There are ways of breaking in jeans with lasers. There's a form called ozone wash, which is blasting air at the jeans. Um, but it's very funny. Like I keep thinking about this idea that there's someone at the Levi's headquarter right now working on technology to fire lasers at jeans. And it seems like it's a silly fashion thing, right? But actually but an amazing title. <laughs> <laughs> an amazing title, <laughs> laser technician. But I mean, this will save gallons and gallons yeah. of water and not just water, like water that has been dyed blue uh, with this like petroleum based blue dye that goes back into the, the water supply system in China. I mean, it, it seems like a silly thing, but it's really not. The impacts of this will be massive huge, if huge. we figure out a different way to wear in our blue jeans. So it's really funny. Well, and a side note, just on the on the indigo thing, is that yeah. uh, you know the indigo process actually like real indigo is a huge process, and it's just not viable for our gene consumption. And so that's you know enter petroleum based dyes, and so yeah. it's it, it's a huge problem because every person has at least, you know, four pair of jeans. So if you multiply, yeah. you know, in the Western world, at least. So just the average American has seven. Seven. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. So it, you know, it, it's a problem probably that is not on the top of people's minds or the forefront of people's minds when it comes to environmental awareness, not to mention, you know, just waste and and not keeping your clothing and that kind of thing. There's a whole sort of litany. There's a rabbit hole you could go down, but um, just stopping and listening um, was a really interesting aspect, I think, um, at least for me for this series. When you, did you, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the craft of telling stories about 
the history of fashion and making them interesting. It almost seemed like you had a like a Sarah Koenig fr- from Serial podcast kind of <laughs> approach to telling something that could be really dry and yeah. of interest only to people at FIT, you know, or FIT. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that was a, that's the huge benefit I have about being a layperson. I really didn't know much about fashion, uh, nor did I know much about design when I started at Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, which you know helps helps you make it interesting for the common person because I am the common person. And I think a real important part of making sure the story was interesting was that conversation with a friend at the beginning, because it presents a question mm-hmm. in your mind that you need answered. Why are po- why do why do women's clothes have no pockets? You know why is the kids' clothing section so ridiculous? Um, what's up with Hawaiian shirts? Or you know can anyone own plaid? And so it begins with a genuine question that they present to you, and it kind of um, infects your mind with that mm. question. And then I think the other thing was about making myself a character, and that you get to follow my. Some, in some cases, my literal journey to other places to figure out what the deal is and arrive at some sort of satisfying conclusion, uh, which I think is really important. And, you know, in some cases, it's a little more definite than others. But, uh, you know, I never wanted the answer to be like fashion. It's whatever you want it to be. I think the most interesting podcasts, like, um, do you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History? Mm-mm. And I, I love it. Because he just takes such strong stances. He does not give a shit about what other people think. He's, you know, there's this one amazing episode where he's railing against uh, football because of the, of, uh, the widespread head injuries. And he just says overtly, like, don't go to football, don't support football. And, um, you know, that's such a wild opinion to take and he's not trying to be diplomatic and he's just stating it. And so I really wanted to make sure I injected a lot of my own conclusion, my own opinion in this as well and come to the definite answer of like, mend your jeans, don't buy new jeans. Um, Which is such a lovely juxtaposition because you approach the series almost like an investigative journalist would, (laughs) (laughs) but for Hawaiian shirts, but you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to insert you wouldn't be able to editorialize if you were truly an investigative reporter. Like it wouldn't right. be it wouldn't be ethical. So finding right. finding for me finding that balance is what made it stand out from any other sort of you know social slash historical work. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you. I feel so seen. <laughs> I see you. Um, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite episode though probably was Punk Style. Oh and yes. I want you know when I was fifteen, my favorite book was, um, and I don't want to live this life, which is the Nancy Spungen story. Nancy Spungen oh. was the girlfriend of Sid Vicious, who, and she was mentally ill. It was written by her mom. So just, oh wow! Yeah, you should check it out. It's it's a great book. Totally. It's still on my bookshelf to this day. To this day, but. Um, so that just that part of history and for for that sect of music, clothing was so important and mm-hmm. and mostly because Vivian Westwood. And I had no idea I should know, 
but I had no idea that she wrote some of the words, some of the lyrics for for yeah. the Sex Pistols. Did you go into that story? Speak a little bit about because this particular episode veered away from a specific garment. It's the only one in the series that really talked about the zeitgeist of a particular time within the context of a movement. Mm. Hey, by the way, thank you so much for all these in-depth questions. I really appreciate all the um, careful listening and all the care you've put into this. It's really a treat. Um, I think the point of... The reason I saved this one for last was because I kind of wanted to boil the lobster slowly. Um, I wanted it to be extremely relatable to normal listeners of 99% Invisible, who we normally tell a story about a concrete thing. And the thing I wanted to talk about in the punk style episode was the concept of of style, of fashion. Like, what? Why? Why bother to dress up? Why express yourself in clothing? And I think if we just started with that or put it in the middle of the series, it wouldn't work. People mm. would be like, "What is? What is this? Uh, you know, this this fashion show that's an in my design show." And I think it was a way by saving it for last, being like, "See all these elements of design. We've talked about environmental impact. We've talked about class. We've talked about textiles. We've talked about history. Now we're going to talk about this thing called style." And how this brings it all together. And I've been wanting to tell this story about Vivian Westwood for 11 years, ever since I saw this exhibit at uh, the de Young Museum in San Francisco, which was, uh, it was a traveling exhibit from the Victoria and Albert Museum, and it was a retrospective of Vivian Westwood's work. Oh, and I'm so I was, jealous. Oh my God, it was, you would love it, Vicky. It was extraordinary. It blew my mind, because I had no idea that, Punk was invented by someone. Just the the fact, and then looking back in retrospect, it's like, oh my god, of course, it's a look that's so specific. Of course, someone made it. It's not like everyone just spontaneously came up with that idea. Um, but just this, it really helped me understand what fashion designers do, and it's something that I really wanted to share with people. This idea that. Um, you know, something on a runway might look crazy or expensive or inaccessible, but just over time, over the course of many, many decades, it can trickle down into culture and just mean the world to people. People who think they don't care about style. People like my boss, Roman, who I interviewed for the story. I mean, he didn't know anything about Vivian Westwood growing up, and punk clothes were just everything in his identity growing up as a kid in central Ohio. It's the way you find your tribe. It's the way you find your people. And the fact that she gave this to disenfranchised weirdo kids all over the world is huge. And that is something that fashion designers are still doing today. They're finding new forms of self-expression and pushing the boundaries um, of what is acceptable to include more and more and more people. And we still have so far to go, like so, 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 so far to go, especially for men. I feel so bad that men don't feel able to fully express themselves. I feel like men have one knob that they can turn and it's like dressing up and you can turn that knob all the way up to a suit or you can but turn it back But they did get pockets. Like, they did get pockets. They <laughs> so. did get pockets. 
this is true. This is true. Um, but yes, there's. I mean, yeah. there's there's definite repression that happens. Um, expression repression that happens. Um, totally. And I feel like a big part of toppling the patriarchy is saving men from the burden of masculinity and allowing everyone to express themselves in a way that helps them feel good and feel comfortable. Um, I think it'll be really interesting yeah. to see how fashion is affected or male menswear is affected by the sort of redefining of what it means to be a man that's happening right now. Um, and uh. it's it's everything from gender fl- fluidity, which has nothing to do with being a man. But it, there's right. a little something, there's like a drop of that and then a drop what's, of what's going on with the Me Too movement and a drop of, you know, I, I heard a comedian at one point uh, write an edit- editorial. I wish I could remember what the name was but and he said that you know women have been moving through feminism you know for for decades and redefining what womanhood was men haven't been talking about how their roles are changing uh-huh. we, we don't have a model that we're watching and it was in no way saying like you know women are lucky. He wasn't saying that. It was just observational that we've all sort of had this tribe and we're growing and remolding and whatever. And men have been kind of at the sidelines watching. And so now, for better or worse, you know, there's repercussions. But a lot of it is that there is this really sort of like, you know, abyss of what, you know, when it comes to defining what masculine roles are. And it'll be interesting as that pans out, the pendulum is really swinging to one side right now. When it starts to even out, it'll be interesting how it trickles down into things like, you know, music and writing, which will come first, but then, you know, fashion. Yes, 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 yes. Um, And it makes me so excited for the future and so excited to, you know, I'm looking at high fashion and runways which is something I've never really cared about before. I didn't really think it was applicable to life in any way. It seemed like high art that was completely removed from society. But it's a bellwether, you know? And it's been so fun to see reinterpretations of masculinity on the catwalk. And who knows? Maybe we'll be seeing variants of those in five, ten years. It's exciting. Well, then I'll expect you to do an episode on it. <laughs> Actually, I did an episode a long time ago for 99% Invisible when I was starting to really think about clothes about the trend forecasting company WGSN. Do you yeah. know them? I saw them um, give a presentation at South by Southwest last year, and it was ah. probably it was probably the best panel that I or actually not panel presentation um, that I saw the whole time. Oh, I'm so jealous of you. They're, it's deeply, deeply fascinating. It's fascinating. After, when we're done here, I'll, I'll fill you in on some of it. It was fascinating. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I did an episode on that a while ago, and that was the first. I did it two years ago, which is funny because they let me look at their website, you know, which is behind like a thousands dollar paywall. Yeah. And they let me look at what the genes of the future will look like in two years. And now that I'm at that point, I think they are totally right. They are totally, totally right. They were like low, flared, hip-hugging. They had a little bit more embellishment than they do now. But um, I mean, I live in Texas. There's a lot of embellishment on some people's (laughs) jeans. That might be geographical. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Well, also keep in mind, I mean, San Francisco is the land of the the gray fleece hoodie. So I'm not supposed... 
I have no way of knowing what the people, what the well, fashionable people are wearing. Speaking of gray, you know, fleece hoodie and also of menswear, one thing I did take away from that panel, I mean, I took a bunch of stuff away, but they posited that, um, you know, in the near future, formal wear for men, suits for men would not be a thing. That they're so impractical that just a nicer casual that involved sort of like a jacket, but it was really more hoodie material, a lot looser, drapier kind of, you know, and kind of just cleaner sneakers, essentially. Like, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's really the wave of where, where it's going to go, especially, and a lot of that is because people don't have, is traditional jobs on on masses they used to. Um, there's a lot of telecommuting now and, right. you know entrepreneurship and that type of thing. And, and I thought that was, I'll, I'll be really interested to see in five years if we're seeing less suits. Sure, sure, sure. You know, the thing I'll be interested to see is, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'll be very curious to see if the tuxedo sticks around because it's funny. I feel like an everyday application or normal, uh, a normal degree of nice dressing will be subject to change. And I wonder if the tuxedo will remain this epitome, uh, red carpet wear, elusive, uh, extremely, extremely highbrow form. It's almost like the platonic ideal of male dressing that most people don't need or get to do. And it'll be really interesting to see if those changes on a lower level of dressing up will affect that. That's what that's what they were positing. I mean, I think that a tuxedo... tuxedos will go away. No, 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 no. It's that, okay. it's that lower level. I think yeah, a tuxedo yeah, yeah. is like the, you know... Like the Hollywood glam dress, it's always going yeah. to be, it's aspirational. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Marshall McLuhan called it the only true costume of man, is the tuxedo. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Yeah. I'm kind of sad. What do you hope that people take away from your work? Um, I mean... Hmm. I mean, anyone who's even just like, I never thought about clothes before you like clothes are now interesting to me. That's like win right there. Just for anyone to start getting pleasure out of looking at clothing who hasn't before. That's awesome. Uh, but I know for me doing this research has changed my life. I mean, I, I just can't buy anything new anymore. And um, this morning I was picking up boots from the cobbler and I have to pick up my jeans from the seamstress and suddenly I'm devoting so much more time to working with what I already have and, um, trying to enjoy my closet. And it's funny, I think in, in working on this series, I've noticed, how do I put this? I think there's this idea that I used to have, that I think a lot of people who don't think about fashion have, that trends are dictated from on high. You know, like Anna Wintour sends out a memo that's like, uh, fuchsia is out. And everyone's like, oh, God, throw out all my fuchsia things. Mm -hmm. And I think people who are proudly not into fashion 
look down on that, think it doesn't apply to them and thinks it's silly. And I realize what the churn of fashion actually is, which is a feeling in your own mind whenever you look at your closet and you're like, I have nothing to wear. Or when you see someone wearing something, or if you get an idea in your head that's like, I need X. I need white boots, you know? Like that is the that is what trends are. And the way that fashion infects your mind and makes you think that these like your cha- your tastes are going to change inevitably because we're all growing and we're changing. Um and fashion just plays into that. And so I think that's what I've really taken away from this is understanding understanding when that kind of hunger arises in myself and trying to learn how to ignore it or work with it or sate it in a way that's not just going out and buying new clothes. And I, you know, the thing is, I don't say this overtly in the podcast, but I do know uh, some people have taken that message from it saying, oh, I've never understood the environmental impacts of fashion before. And that makes me really happy. And that's why I really wanted to end with the punk style episode, this idea that you don't need a lot of money. You don't need new things. It's about, it's not about what you wear. It's about how you wear it. And it's also about giving a damn. It's about trying and having fun with it. And so I hope people will try and have fun. Well, Avery Truffleman, it has been an absolute delight listening to you talk about 99% Invisible and articles of interest. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my God. Thank you so much, Vicki. And thank you again for your really insightful, beautiful questions and for listening. For more information on Avery Truffleman and articles of interest, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it is time for my favorite new segment, What I'm Crafting To, brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. And you can find all of their titles, as I mentioned at the top of the show, at tryaudiobooks.com. Add a slash and crafter after that, and you're going to get a feast for the crafter's ears. This week, I binged watch a new Amazon Prime show called Homecoming, and it is starring Julia Roberts. And so, of course, I had to check it out for sure. But also, it is by the same creator that did Mr. Robot. So if you liked the overall vibe of Mr. Robot, the sort of like interesting subplots, the little, the subtle darkness, sometimes not so subtle, um, and also the overarching theme that you never really know what's going on, then um, I think you might dig Homecoming. So that's on Amazon. Um, Then I am back hard and heavy with audiobooks. So I'm still listening to the mystery novel The Witch Elm, and it is by Tana French, who I have read and adored before. I really liked her book, In the Woods. And I'm about, I would say, a third of the way through, so I can't really speak to, well, I don't want to speak too much more than the plot. I mentioned it last week, but I I encourage you, if you like mysteries or um, psychological thrillers or a fan of Tana French's, you should definitely check out The Witch Elm. All right. I also downloaded this week uh, I like to have more than one book going sometimes just that's in that are in different genres just so I can listen to whatever my mood um, uh, mood navigates and so this week I downloaded the new Michelle Obama memoir Becoming 
and I'm a few chapters into it and it's as eloquent and lovely as you would expect and I'm just I'm finding her just inspiring as always as a mother and woman and leader and am uh, happy to have her voice and her wisdom as the background to my making this week. I would love to hear what you're crafting too, so please post a comment on the show notes page or reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter at Vicki Howell or Instagram also at Vicki Howell and let me know what your recommendations are. It can be a podcast, it can be a show, it can be a movie, and of course I love to hear about audiobooks. You can find the ones that I recommended today at tryaudiobooks.com. If you liked this episode of Craftish, please share it with a friend and take a minute to rate or review on Apple Podcasts. Now they've made it much easier than it used to be. You can actually do it on your phone within the podcast app. So I really appreciate it. It helps people find this show. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. If you know any knitters and crocheters out there, by the way, uh, just heads up that November Yarnier sales are now open. Yarnier is my subscription box service, and we have a limited amount available as of the time of this recording. So we're not yet sold out, but we have every month thus far. So get thee to yarnier.com and nab one for yourself or a friend while you can. All right keep your peeps open or your ears open rather next Thursday for our next episode of Craftish. We will have guest Robert Maher. He is my friend. He's a designer, artist, and he was also a contestant on the NBC hit show Making It. That is the crafting competition show hosted by Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler and it's a really fun ride and I was so impressed by the work that Robert did on it so looking forward to sharing that with you until then please take a minute to feed that creative well breathe in craft out